This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Over the long-term history of humanity, there have been four cognitive revolutions which jump-started our human evolution and success. About 70,000 years ago, primitive Stone Age Homo sapiens were beset by climate change and unable to compete successfully on the harsh African savanna. They almost became extinct. Then, our big-brained ancestors discovered art and ceremony, and presumably dance, music, and song and these puny two-legged creatures thrived and proliferated. It is essential to understand that it was art, not sophisticated tools and weaponry, that was the driving force behind the first cognitive revolution, the consciousness revolution. Moving forward through history, we fostered the agricultural, the industrial, and the computer revolutions. But today, storm clouds rise on the horizon again. Climate change threatens, and we as a species, beset by anger, division, and frustration. Yes, we have the most marvelous technology imaginable, but that is not sufficient. We need a second conscious revolution based on positive thinking, love, cooperation, dance, music, and art to provide us with the human power to endure and prosper, writes John Turk. Valeria Tellez interviews him, John Turk, the author of Tracking Lions, Myth and Wilderness in Samburu, The Raven's Gift, a scientist, a shaman, and their remarkable journey through the Siberian wilderness, among other titles. John Turk earned a PhD in organic chemistry in 1971 and was nominated by National Geographic as one of the top 10 adventurers of the year in 2012. Between these bookends, John co-authored the first college-level environmental science textbook in North America, followed by 30 additional texts in environmental, physical, and earth sciences. At the same time, he kayaked around Cape Horn and across the North Pacific from Japan to Alaska, mountain-biked across the northern Gobi in Mongolia, and made numerous first ski descents and first rock-climbing ascents around the globe. During extended travel in Northeast Siberia, John's worldview was altered by Mulinat, a Siberian shaman, and his later books reflect these spiritual journeys. John has published four trade books, Cold Oceans, HarperCollins, In the Wake of the Joman, McGraw Hill, The Raven's Gift, St. Martin's Press, and Crocodiles and Ice, Ulakan Press. Tracking Lions, Myth, and Wilderness in the Samburu delves more deeply into a mind-body-spirit theme supported by adventure storytelling, integrated with an anthropological view of the role of art and mythology in human development. Meet John at johnturk.net. Here's the interview with John Turk, 
your own words, who is John Turk? Well, that's always the hardest question in the world to answer without tooting my own horn or anything. I'm an old man. I'm 76. I got a PhD in organic chemistry in 1971. That was 50 years ago. I've been a professional adventurer. And in one of my big adventures, I encountered Moulinot, a 96-year-old shaman, Siberian shaman, raised in the old way. And she altered my perception of the world. That was in 2000. That was uh, 22 years ago. And when I came back, back to the United States, I ended up spending five years off and on in her village to learn with her and study with her and my life and our conversation uh, this afternoon is very much informed by uh, Moulinot. That's beautiful. I know the story and it's amazing how much human beings can influence one another. I believe, it's not a belief system, that we are all connected, interconnected anyway. So that makes so much sense. We just talked about her now, Molina, and you said she was raised in the old way. What does it mean, John? Yeah. Well, in the old way, people were connected with nature in a way that we cannot appreciate. So we go for a walk in the woods or spend a lot of time or go for a two-month canoe trip. But when we were raised, we were raised in a square house with square walls, with television, with communication, with all of that. And Moulinot was raised living with the reindeer. And growing up, what she says is that to be a reindeer herder, You have to be able to be outside at night in the middle of a Siberian winter with a blizzard going and there be a wolf or a pack of wolves a mile away coming towards your reindeer and you have to know that those wolves are there. When the next generation after Moulinot was raised during the Soviet times, and all of their children were pulled out of their culture and put into schools, as was done in the United States, as was done in Canada, and made to sit at a desk and learn reading and writing and arithmetic. And reading and writing and arithmetic are fine, but they don't tune you into that wolf. They don't tune you into the reindeer. And of all the people in the Koryak nation who were brought into the Soviet school and trained in reading, writing, and arithmetic, nobody, zero people have managed to reach back and attain the power that Moulinot had. So... Your question, what does it mean to be raised in the old way? It means from birth, your life is interconnected in a reciprocal loving relationship with nature. Mm, which includes other human beings, right, John? 
Yeah, of course there are other. Of course, it includes other human beings. Um, it involves the whole tribe, and the tribe being a group of people whose lives depend upon one another. It's much more intense than a neighborhood. You like your neighbors. You talk over the fence and you help each other and loan the neighbor some sugar or a cube of butter. But your lives are not absolutely dependent on each other. What do you think happened besides cognitive evolution in a sense of literacy, just learning this desire to learn more knowledge from books and you name it? Besides that, what else is there that you attribute to this connection, I would call it, this uh, imbalance that we see now in human beings? Well, every time we look at a screen, whether it be a television or a computer, and I'm as guilty as everybody, I spend a lot of time looking at a screen, we are removed, our brain is programmed to relate to the world in a different way because the screen is not reality. The screen is a representation of reality. When I was on my Ellesmere expedition, I was three and a half months and we had the only words, written words we had was three or four pages of the Tao, little bits of wisdom And we had no screen and no removal from nature. Now, that's three months, not, not 50 years or 60 years. But in that time, and our lives were totally dependent on our relationship with nature. And at one point, we were caught by moving ice for 17 days. And for that 17 days, we sat on the beach and watched the ice. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> and and, and that's, that reality <laughs> changes you. And 17 days changes you. 17 years would change you more. 70 years would change you even more. So, so true. It resonates true to me. I know the power of being around nature. And what comes to mind is, because now it seems like we've been so attracted and so focused on the square-like boxes-like realities that I wonder what is the antidote to moving out of that reality? <laughs> <laughs> well... I wish I could give you a, an answer, <laughs> uh, yeah. but it starts with not taking ourselves too seriously and above all, not taking our ego too seriously. Our ego separates us from the world. And what's important is not to be separated from the world. So Anytime we get in our ego, I am this, I am John Turk, I have a PhD, I want power, I want money, I want this, then that puts us into the stories in our own head, and the stories in our own head 
take us away from the now and that takes us away from nature and that removes us from what I consider the, the fundamental truth and wisdom of the cosmos. It's a wonderful idea to connect with nature and by doing so, letting it change us. But we can also do that from the inside out, can't we? Yeah, I'm going to uh, take this little question and run it with a story. It's a story that opens my book, Tracking Lions, Myth, and Wilderness in Samburu. And I was in Africa. A lion had eaten a cow in the local village. And I was asked to go to out into the savanna with the village headman and track the lion. And they handed me a wooden club in case the lion, something went wrong. And the lion charged out of the bushes and wanted to eat me. And I'm walking through the bushes, through the savanna with this club following the tracks of a lion. And... At first, I'm all of a sudden I get angry because I'm in danger. I'm so closely, we're talking about connectivity to nature. Mm -hmm. This is connectivity <laughs> to <laughs> nature. The lion could eat me. Right, right. Too close. You're way too close. <laughs> yeah. And then I realized, <laughs> wow, anger is really not my friend right now. And connectivity is my friend. And I'm not saying or suggesting that as an exercise, let's do a workshop and let's all go out in the uh, savanna with a wooden club and chase a lion. <laughs> yeah. But what I am saying is that our primordial ancestors, our Stone Age ancestors, did this. This is how they lived every day. And all of a sudden, the, the fear does no good. The sense of vulnerability becomes uplifting, not damaging. And now we live in this wonderful technological society, and it really is wonderful. I'd be dead now if not for modern medicine. It's, it's just great to have everything that we have. But at the same time, there's chaos out there, a lot of chaos. And how do we respond to the chaos? Well, in the same way that we use now the lion in the bushes is a metaphor. We are walking through our world, going to work, uh, doing the laundry, taking the kids to gymnastics, whatever we're doing. And imagine yourself for a moment in the savanna, alone, vulnerable, with a wooden club, and this chaos out there, which we're using as the metaphor, as the lion in the bushes, it's climate change, it's anger, it's all of these things that are going on in society. And... What I'm suggesting is that we stop, slow down, recalibrate, embrace the vulnerability. The vulnerability is okay. And then reach out to it 
as we would reach out to the lion, as we would reach out to another sentient being with love. <laughs> as you say, love in the quest for well-being. I mean, that sums the whole thing up. <laughs> I love the way you talk about consciousness and this a need for a second conscious revolution. That's so inspiring. I will read some of the passages where you talk about specifically about consciousness revolution and the need for it. You say in one instance, it is essential to understand that it was art, not sophisticated tools and weaponries that was the driving force behind the first cognitive revolution, the consciousness revolution. And then you say, the conscious revolution and awakening of the spirit that gave our human ancestors the inner strength to face the lion physically and metaphorically, which we just talked about. And then you said something else. You write, we need a second conscious revolution based on positive thinking, love, cooperation, dance, music, and art to provide us with the human power to endure and prosper. That's a beautiful vision. And then what comes to me is, besides those civilizations, tribes, like the indigenous tribes, and of course the Siberian uh, shamans, I wonder if humanity at some point lived as a whole this harmonic, balanced way of being. Have you heard, John, of in history, of a human beings living in perfect harmony. Great, great. We're getting to the heart of what <laughs> we're talking about. This is wonderful. Yeah. Okay, so I'm tracking the lion with uh, armed with the club, and I wonder how did human beings, Stone Age human beings, actually survive? So when I came home back to uh, North America, I did some research, and... What I learned was this, human beings started growing big brains a long time ago, four or five million years ago. But we did not have sophisticated tools. We had simple tools, uh, uh, sharpened stone that you hold in your hand, but nothing like a bow and arrow or a throwing spear or anything like that. And we kept growing bigger brains and bigger brains so the question is, what were we doing with these big brains? And actually, the whole experiment was not working out very well. People, human beings, homo sapiens, were starting to go extinct. And about 70,000 years ago, the human race was almost wiped off the face of the earth there were only about 2,000 individuals left. And then our population started to explode. So the question is, what caused our success? Why did we rise ourselves above the brink of extinction? And the answer is when scientists, archaeologists, anthropologists look into the fossil record, they find that this success, this physical success of survival was generated not 
by the invention of sophisticated tools, but by the invention of art, by mythology, by storytelling, by dance, by music. This is anthropological fact. Tools came later. Now, I learned just the opposite in school. I said, well, people must have invented school uh, tools, and then they had the free time to do frivolous things like dance and draw pictures. That is not correct. Dancing and drawing pictures and telling stories around the campfire is the essence of our power. And that gave us the consciousness revolution to survive. And once we had this community, once we had the tribe loving and working together, once we had the joy in our hearts, the tools came later. And then the history is very well known. So 12,000 or so years ago, we had the agricultural revolution, we had cities, and then we had the industrial revolution, the steam engine and the computer revolution and all of these wonderful things that we just talked about. And now we are back to an issue, a time when the human race is in crisis. And I say that seriously, not as an exaggeration. And what I'm saying, I'm not saying we all should abandon our computers and our comfortable homes and go live in the woods and eat nuts and berries. No, of course not. That would be silly. But what I'm saying is we can't depend on our tools and technology to save us. Mm. We need a second consciousness revolution based on, I say this with a light heart, love and the quest of well-being. <laughs> yes, with love. So that would be the balance, right, John? Is that the vision? Maybe kind of balancing, using the tools, the wisdom that we have available and dancing with everything, kind of bringing them together. Like you said, it's not about... Uh, letting go of something, giving up what we have, but goes back to common sense, isn't it? Even love to me is common sense. <laughs> when you speak of storytelling, of course, I know the power of that, and it has been, yet you already talked about the history of storytelling, how powerful it is. What is another way of communicating powerful messages and wisdom that would kind of reduce the chances of personal interpretation? and the creation of tribes again and separation again. As we see, stories can do both, right? Connect and disconnect us. Oh, boy. <laughs> I think we are, every individual has their own form of power inside them. So you are different than me. I am different than you. My wife, Nina, is different from either of us. And every person has their own special specialness and beauty and uniqueness. And to communicate the consciousness revolution, 
each person has to look inside themselves and say, where is my power? Where, how can I communicate? Um, maybe I'm sitting here and you and I are talking together and putting these podcasts out to the world. Maybe your form of communication is totally different. Maybe your form of communication is raising the most wonderful, beautiful children in the whole world that will go out into the world and continue the love into the next generation. Maybe you're a musician, maybe you're this, maybe you're that. I, I can't answer the question generically. Right. By nature, we are storytellers. So in a way, we are telling our own stories in our own unique ways of expression by doing what we do. So in, with that in mind, I wanted to ask you questions about your way of expressing that message in the world at this time. You have two projects happening, current projects, featured film based on The Raven's Gift, your book, and then also dance performance based on The Trekking Lions, Myth and Wilderness in Samburu. So talk to me for a moment about those two projects, John. Yeah, well, The Raven's Gift, thank you. The Raven's Gift is about story about my five years with Moulinot, and it became a very intense and personal relationship because I had an old injury that had been repaired surgically in, in Western medicine. But when I was in Siberia, the Something went wrong, I don't know, and I couldn't walk. I was, I, I couldn't stand up. And yes, if I could have called a helicopter and been flown to a Western medical hospital, I would have done that. I was afraid. And Moulinot had me envision a journey to the other world. Uh, basically, she got me up. I took off all my clothes. I was naked. I was standing on one leg. I was in the uh, pose of flight, one hand behind my back, the other hand out in front of me to fly to the other world to talk to Kutcha, the raven, who would then fly to the woman who lived on top of the highest mountain, and she would heal me. And she did. And then I spent the next five years, not continuously, I was back and forth a little, but I spent a tremendous amount of time in that village trying to understand how that came to be. What, what was the source of that power? And that's the subject of the Raven's Gift. And of course, I don't have an answer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to come to you like, oh, well, I went out there and I found a secret letter under the stone and I can give you the answer. No, 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 it doesn't work like that. But yeah. I, I did mm -hmm. learn that the Koryak people base their power on a triumvirate of the spiritual journey, the shaman, the hunter, the pragmatist, and the tundra, the reciprocal relationship with the earth, which is what we've been talking about for the last half hour. The second book, um, Tracking Lions, Myth, and Wilderness in Samburu, 
comes into the next question is why is there so much evil in the world? And this is a tricky question to tackle <laughs> in my last book. I'm an old man, you know, and you're like, whoa, here we go. But the problem is that storytelling in mythology and dance and tribalism brought us together. But then powerful people, when we were concentrated into cities, hijacked. They stole the truth. They stole the power stone. The power stone is crying because it got stolen. It got locked in a vault away from us. And they used the power of storytelling to generate evil, to generate hatred, to generate anger. They're doing it today. And I think we have to understand and look at what's going on and say, that is a hijacking of the old truths. That is not the old truths. And we have to defend ourselves against that. Yeah. And that makes me think about, you know, the, you probably have heard this before. It's a very simple metaphor for life itself, that we can use a knife to cut an apple and eat and be healthy <laughs> and also to kill someone. So it's interesting how it's almost like it is the essence of or the fabric of this reality, isn't it? Duality. We have access to everything just the way it is, but then it's what we make out of it. It's what we choose, if there is such a thing as choosing, which I don't believe in free will. We choose to use whatever it is to do whatever we want to do. But then... The question is, if there is no free will, which I don't believe in free will, or choice, individual choice, I wonder why life itself happens in this way, this dance of opposites and freedom. The energy of life itself, it's free. So it does whatever it wants it to do. <laughs> and in this way, we are all free because we are all life. So, yeah, that's more like a spiritual kind of um, inquiry into the core of reality or the nature of this reality. Do you have some comments to make, uh, <laughs> John, about that? <laughs> oh, that was so beautifully said, Valerie. It's hard to add to it. But we're, we're driven by various forces within us. Um, our DNA is programmed towards survival, nothing else. DNA is continued if we survive, if we have children, if our children survive. And the basic survival of the fittest isn't about love or beauty or goodness or altruism or, or sharing. It's only about surviving. But at the same time, we also are endowed with this wonderful brain, the cerebral cortex, that can, can see a good way, that can see the value of love, that can see the value of joy and compassion and being good to your neighbor, and can see how destructive anger is, not to other people. Yeah, of course, anger is destructive to other people. 
But if I am angry, anger is most destructive to me. And so the answer to your question in a roundabout way is that, yes, our DNA might tell us to join a tribe and get angry at somebody, but we, like you say, it's a balance of opposites. It's, it's a complex relationship, but we have the power to step outside of our DNA and to journey in a, in a direction that brings not only love and peace and joy to the world, but love and peace and joy to ourselves. Mm. Yes, a billion times to that. So I could say that the conscious revolution you speak of, it is a spiritual revolution, isn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's a spiritual revolution and, and we can do it. We've done it before. So don't lose faith. It is there and available to us. We just have to reach out and grab it. It always comes to me as well that um, it is very important to be open. We are almost at the end, and I do have something, another passage that you say that's beautiful. Without Mulana, I needed another helper, a guide to show me the way. I chose nature herself because nature tells no stories. Nature is presence. Yes, nature creates clouds that rain on your parade. <laughs> this part is funny. I know that. But the rain has no intent, no anger. There are no good things or bad things that happen in nature. Just presence, just the now. So you said it here, you say it here, yeah, there are no good or bad things in nature, but just what's happening, just this moment in what's present. Ah, that's like the ultimate spiritual, to me, <laughs> revelation, realization, and it's beautiful. Thank you so much, John, for being you. <laughs> Again, <laughs> well, being open. Valeria, thank you so much for being you, and thank you for honoring me with this, our third podcast. I feel deeply honored. Yeah, thank you for your presence in this reality. My last question is, before we say goodbye, I do want to ask you one more question about healing. That's a word that I use a lot for the podcast and everything I do. For some reason, it, it comes to me a lot, that word, and I, I keep using it, healing. What is your interpretation of healing? Well, healing... Buddha told us very clearly, and life itself is very clear, that life has bad things that happen to us. And this is inevitable. We can't expect or want everything to be perfect in some imaginary narrative of what perfect is. Suffering is, uh, physical suffering is inevitable, but mental suffering is not inevitable. It's how we react to it. So healing, I think it would be dangerous to say that healing means I never get sick. Healing means I never stub my toe. Healing means I don't get old. That is not what healing is about. Healing is about what we've just been talking about, the consciousness revolution, being in the now, being centered and joyful 
Whatever happens. Oh, yes. Another billion times to that truth. (laughs) (laughs) I love your message. I love your presence. As I said, off record, every time I think of you, the image... It puts a smile on my face immediately, like uplifts something. <laughs> and it's interesting it's because you carry that with you. What do you have? Yeah, it's a, it's carrying that medicine, the healing medicine. Then it's just beautiful. I love your presence. And yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you again, John. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your work, new projects, your books and uh, services? Well, go to my website, uh, which is www.johnturk.net. Very simple, johnturk.net. The two books that we've been talking about uh, that I would like to share with you are The Raven's Gift and the newer one, Tracking Lions, Myth, and Wilderness in Samburu. Wonderful. I'll have the link on your podcast profile, too. Thank you again, and we'll talk soon, John. Thank you, Valeria. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about John Turk and his work, please visit johnturk.net. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.